Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jamila Risby and I am joined by my partner in book crime, Astrid Edwards. And today on our final week of season two, we are talking about a very worthy topic. We're talking about justice. Astrid, do you like to read books where the characters get what they deserve? Oh, I love reading books when the characters get what they deserve, whether that be good, bad or terribly, terribly ugly. I'm excited to talk about this theme today because there have been so many books released over the course of the binfire of 2020 that have a sense of justice to them, not just in the fictional sense, but in the non-fiction sense. I think we're seeing more and more books that have a social justice theme and a call to action around various issues on equality. And I'm keen to start talking about a few books in these genres right away. I am delighted to be talking to you today about Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid. Have you read it? No, I haven't. My knowledge of this book is limited to the fact that that is a great title. I see it all over my social media and I believe it has made the listing for the Booker Prize this year. It certainly has, and it's a worthy listing. So let me give you a bit of a rundown. The book is centered around a character called Amira Tucker. She's a 25-year-old babysitter. She did an English major at college, but doesn't really know what she wants to do with the rest of her life. And she's been babysitting for a mother called Alex Chamberlain, who isn't that much older than Amira. She's sort of early 30s, and she's this upper-class woman who is super-duper woke. Now there's an incident at Alex's house in the middle of the night. And so she has to call Amira and ask her to come and do an hour of emergency babysitting. She just needs to get her little girl who's three just out of the house for a while. Amira's out clubbing, but she needs the money. So she rocks up very, very quickly. She takes the little girl to the rich supermarket around the corner. We can all picture it, right? The bougie supermarket with kombucha and like $13 bread. You know what I mean? That's the kind of supermarket we're in. And Amira is entertaining this little girl and having a great old time with one of her mates who's come with her as well. And there's a white woman in the supermarket who calls security because she thinks that Amira has stolen the child. So this all goes down in the first chapter. I'm giving nothing away, folks. The rest of the book, quite surprisingly to me, focuses on Amira's relationship with the mother of the daughter. Not because the mother of the daughter is angry by any means, it's the opposite. The mother of the daughter is horrified by the racism that's taken place. And she kind of sets about for the rest of the book to prove her non-racistness, <laughs> sometimes not really quite getting there. And it is a really fascinating read about the well-intentioned white person. The well-intentioned white person. I am a white person and 2020 has been a year that is requiring white people to do so much reassessment and reevaluation of everything that they do on a personal level. Uh, not just historical injustice, but the daily, the hourly, the minute by minute interactions that you might have on the street or in your home or in your workplace or wherever. 
God, that is such a timely topic to address in a beautiful piece of literary fiction. I think it really is. And Reed does it in an incredibly sophisticated way with that level of nuance to the somewhat racist or at least racially charged moments that gives you that deep creeping feeling in your skin of not only is this uncomfortable, but there are moments of this that are familiar. I think Reed does a really lovely job of writing both Amira's character and Alex's character and she writes from both perspectives as well as a third character who comes into the book later. She does so with a kind of dexterity. She moves from this young black girl who's using a language and a dialect that would be completely unfamiliar to a lot of the white book club types that are going to pick up this beautiful novel and then at the same time she also speaks about Alex's perspective and there's this scene, Astrid, where Alex, who is the wealthy white woman, is I think the only word is fantasizing. She's fantasizing about her babysitter discovering woke facts about her. <laughs> so she's fantasizing about Amira discovering that one of Alex's best mates is also a black woman and that she loves reading Toni Morrison. But in her head, she has to confect this in a way where Amira finds these things out accidentally because she has to appear woke, but not intentionally woke, if you know what I mean. The nuance of that writing is incredibly impressive. And as the novel plays itself out, we see other characters who are also in this kind of spectrum of blackness and whiteness and wokeness and racism and their entry into the scene. And in a sense, some of our characters get justice. I don't want to give it away, but in other ways they don't. And I think this book is written in a really contemporary way and a really honest way because in the real world, Justice doesn't come to the 25-year-old black babysitter in the way that we'd like it to. In the real world, justice in terms of race relations in America has not come, not for the nation. A few minutes ago, Jam, you said that you were surprised that this book focused on the friendship between the two women. Did that mean that you were expecting it to be Amira's story or what did you go in thinking you were going to get? That's a great question. I think the, the opening chapter set it up as this idea of sort of white security coming down hard on this young black woman and stereotyping her. So that made me expect that I was going to see these quite outwardly villainous white people, people who were clearly committing blatantly racist acts. And yet that wasn't what it was about at all. It was about this character of Alex, who is a widely known feminist who considers herself incredibly inclusive and someone who believes in the power of diversity. And it's more difficult than that because it's not about that obvious, clear racism. It's about the more covert forms of racism, the little assumptions, the little nuances of language and the way some white people like to parade their anti-racism for the purpose of being seen to be anti-racist, not for the purpose of being anti-racist, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And it's actually, you know, I haven't read this book, although I clearly am going to go order it as soon as uh, we stop recording. But please do. It makes me think back to Leila Saad's work, Me and White Supremacy, that we talked about a few episodes ago on Anonymous Was a Woman. And that, of course, is nonfiction. But the point of that is people who think they are woke, people who think that they couldn't possibly be racist, 
are actually often unknowingly racist. And that book asks everybody to do the work to unpick their own internal racism and really like every day, like continue to unpick it and and work it through. And from your description of Such a Fun Age, it sounds like there might be similarities, but explored through fiction instead of a nonfiction work. Yes, I think that's incredibly accurate. And I also loved the words of Stephanie Hayes, who's one of the writers at The Atlantic. She makes the point that the overarching joke of Such a Fun Age is that while the white characters are going about fretting what black people in their lives might think of them and their progressive values, the black characters are dealing with everyday ramifications of structural racism. So they're just trying to get on with their lives and get by and hang out with one another and go to work and get healthcare benefits. And I think it's a really beautiful example of an exploration of race through fiction, through quite a funny uh, narrative, but also with a level of sophisticated nuance that will blow you away and stick with you for a really long time. All right, Jan, this week you asked me to talk about justice and, well, strap yourself in because I want to talk about climate justice. Jam, do you find yourself thinking about climate justice at any point? (laughs) I certainly am someone who worries about the impacts of dangerous climate change, but I don't think I think about it in terms of justice very often. So talk to me about taking that lens on the idea of climate change. So I am specifically talking about Naomi Klein's latest book. It was published in 2019 and it's called On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Now, there are many works on climate justice. This is one that I have been reading recently and therefore is at the top of my mind. However, Klein herself makes the point that while she is talking about climate justice on the global level, because the climate is global and we can only conceptualise climate at that planetary-wide level, she's coming at it from the Anglosphere, she's coming at it from the point of view that you might find in the US or Canada or Australia. So climate justice is so big that in itself that is a problem, right? But the reason why I went to climate justice is because like you are a feminist and you work for gender equality and gender equity, Jam, and that's not going to happen if climate continues to change. And this is a year of Black Lives Matter and that movement will be stalled if the climate crisis continues. And all other social justice movements aren't going to succeed or aren't going to make the change if climate change happens. And the reason why, as Klein makes very clear and lots of other literature has made clear before her, is that whatever you think might happen under climate change, whether your part of the world gets hotter or your part of the world gets colder or the sea levels rise or there are mass movements of people or people lose their jobs and we don't invest in renewable energy, like whatever the thing is in your specific locality, people are going to lose out. And all of the previous injustices are going to come to the fore. That's class, that's race, that's gender-based violence. All of it is going to get worse. And so climate justice is really like at the heart of all of our social movements or should be at the heart of all of our social movements. It's interesting that you say Klein's point is that climate change will bring existing injustices to the fore and perhaps make them even more acute because we've seen 
that to a lesser extent, but a significant extent with the pandemic, because we have seen that a pandemic has hit and impacted people's health and people's freedoms. But then we've seen an impact on people's jobs. And yet the people who are losing jobs faster are women. The financial impact is going to be greater on migrant communities in Australia. We're seeing people with disabilities not having access to their usual hospital appointments, for example, or feeling nervous about those hospital appointments. And that means a lot more for them than it does for the average able-bodied person. So all of these inequalities that already existed are made even worse by this moment. Can you tell me a little bit more about the author? Naomi Klein, I mean, that's a name I recognise. You definitely would. So This is Naomi Klein's eighth book. However, the first book she wrote was No Logo, back in last millennium, 1999. And that was a manifesto of the anti-globalisation movement. So all of her work since then, over the last two decades, has been about trying to critique the global structure, trying to critique the free market economy and neoliberalism and capitalism in every way from fast fashion to gender equity. Like she's looked at everything. And in the last kind of, I guess, 10 years, her focus on all of those social justice movements has really narrowed and she has focused on capitalism and how specifically capitalism as a way we are living is destroying our planet. Now, how that links to justice and equity, I mean, there is a chapter, right? And I'm gonna redo the title of the chapter. Let them drown the violence of othering in a warmer world. So, yeah, oof. And the, the chapter itself gives you that feeling as well. And the point of the chapter is, so if you are brown or black from a country that is not as wealthy as America or Australia or whatnot, you will flee for very, very good reasons if the climate is no longer inhabitable. And you will face such violent, structural, state-based discrimination, as we have already seen with Australia's refugee policy and responses to international refugees around the world. And that will only get worse as more and more people around the world move because of climate change. And she makes the point, just because a bunch of middle-class white people think that a couple of degrees of warming is nothing their air conditioners can't handle, is actually going to kill millions of people who in the first instance may very well not be white. So the inherent xenophobia in not taking the climate crisis seriously is just antithetical to the idea of morality or ethics or justice or any of the good things that we might want in our world. Sorry, I'm a bit taken back because that's a, you know, it's a statement I know the truth of from my own consumption of the news and commentary, but it is expressed in a way that is incredibly powerful in terms of the quotes that you just relayed to us. Does Klein offer a sense of a path forward or is this more of a rallying cry for the world to understand just how bad the situation is? Klein doesn't think that we need to dismantle everything, but she is clearly arguing that we need to goddamn change. And there are some fascinating chapters in here. There is a chapter where she goes to a two-day climate denial conference somewhere in America and she just sits there and she kind of goes through the arguments that you find in a climate denial conference. And while I and she disagree with everything that she experienced there, I didn't realise what, I guess, a climate denier thought. In my mind, I would normally dismiss them. And reading that chapter was quite distressing for me because I don't think I would win an argument against them in person. 
and that's horrifying. There is another chapter on Laudato Si, which was the current Pope's second encyclical, and it is about care and nurture for the natural world. And that is the Pope's way of saying, please don't destroy the environment. And, you know, how religion can play its true moral purpose, perhaps. And that chapter also makes me feel very uncomfortable. And Klein has a postscript about how the church has failed dramatically on other social justice issues. But if the Pope is telling a billion Catholics to please be nice to the planet, then that's not a bad thing, right? And so climate justice is just, it's just everything, Jan. I want to read you a quote from Klein. And this is in the introduction because there's another horrifying thing that is even worse than everything I've mentioned. And it's about intergenerational justice. I'm not sure things can get worse than what you've already said, but please go ahead. Things can always get worse, particularly when we're talking about the climate crisis. And this is a quote. Young people around the world are cracking open the heart of the climate crisis, speaking of a deep longing for a future they thought they had, but that is disappearing with each day that adults fail to act on the reality that we are in an emergency. We're stuffing up the planet for the next generations, and it's not fair. I am going to take a totally different tact when it comes to our recommendations because I feel we can't deal with a subject like justice in books without recognising the enormously large genre of both fiction and nonfiction, which is crime. It's an incredibly popular choice of reading material for so many people. And I wanted to share with you one of the books I found most compelling in this space, and that is Joe Cinque's Consolation, A True Story of Death, Grief and the Law by none other than Australia's Helen Garner. It was published in 2004 and I I remember it very clearly because it was my first year at university and I was studying law at the Australian National University in Canberra, which is where a large part of this book takes place. So this is an account of Helen Garner sitting in the separate trials of a woman called Anu Singh and her friend Madhavi Rao, who were accused of murdering Anu Singh's boyfriend, Joe Singhwe. And through the book, Garner tries to unpack all of the many events that led to Cinque's death and understand both the legal and I, I suppose social context that led to the crime and the way people responded to the crime. It's a fascinating read. It's devastating that that this was a true story. Anyone who's familiar with Canberra will love all of the Canberra references through it and also be horrified by the Canberra references through it. And it's a really poignant, I think, exploration of where the law intersects with our expectations about justice. In the end, the conviction is made and yet the conviction is not one of murder because Joe Cinque's killer is given a reasonable excuse and a reasonable excuse that Ghana certainly suggests to us is confected. Jam, I can't believe we have gone through two seasons of Anonymous Was a Woman and somehow not managed to mention a work by Helen Garner yet. I know, it's so embarrassing, but we fixed it just at the last moment. We have fixed it. And, you know, I haven't read this work by Helen Garner, but thank you for the recommendation. And also, you know, this is an old book, 15, 16 years old. It is such a reminder that a good book doesn't date. 
We all don't have to read something that was published this year. A good book is a good book forever. Also, Astrid, I prefer written in 2004 than 16 years ago. Because that makes me feel positively ancient. I'm older than oh you, Jan. Oh, my God, it was that long ago. Okay, quickly, quickly, move us on to a new recommendation. I can't think about this for long. All right, well, once again, Jam, brace yourself. So I am not letting climate justice go. So instead of a single recommendation, I have gone back and I have got a list of all of the climate-themed works, fiction and non-fiction, that I have mentioned over two seasons of Anonymous Was a Woman. So in case no one has been listening to me, to think about climate justice in terms of fiction, I recommend Terranellius, a novel by Claire G. Coleman. You've heard me rant about this before. It's stunning. As well as the, the three novels, The Mother Fault by Kate Millenhall, The Glad Shout by Alice Robinson and Wolf Island by Lucy Trelaw, three beautiful female writers all based in Melbourne. For nonfiction, we have obviously spoken to Rebecca Huntley before and her new work, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, really hopefully helps us all move that whole fiasco of a conversation forward in a productive way. But we have also previously spoken about the fiction of Arundhati Roy. And I would like to remind everybody that Arundhati Roy has actually not written that much fiction. She has devoted decades of her career to writing about climate justice. There is the forthcoming Fire, Flood and Plague by the beloved Sophie Cunningham, also based in Melbourne, that comes out in December. And then there is my really odd recommendation, which I'm still kind of embarrassed about, but Jane Fonda's What Can I Do? The woman keeps getting herself arrested on behalf of the climate. And quite frankly, I think that's a beautiful thing. And finally, you know who I'm going to say, anything about Greta Thunberg, because she just might save us all. I certainly hope that's true. And I can't believe quite how much climate fiction or authors who happen to write about climate in their other works or climate nonfiction you have recommended in just 16 episodes. But I salute you for it. I will take it over the fantasy any day, Astrid, any day. That is about all we've got time for on Anonymous Was a Woman. This is our second last episode of season two. We will be back in just a few days time with the fabulous Rick Morton to discuss his new work on money published by Hachette. In the meantime, make sure you don't miss Rick Morton. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Tell us how much you love us and how much you want us back for another season for it not to happen would be a deep and serious injustice. Thanks Astrid. Jem. Am I allowed to say how much I love Rick Morton and can't wait to put that episode out into the world? Oh, countdown, everyone, countdown. He's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs>